Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession today comes from Proverbs chapter 19, verse 26. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. This is the sin of a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. Besides the wrong they do to themselves, they are ruinous to their good parents, ungrateful to those who were instruments of their being and have taken such care and pains for them. This is a child who shamefully is ungrateful to those that are instruments of their very existence. They waste their father's estate, which he should have to support him in his age. They waste his spirits and breaks his heart. They chase away their mother and alienate her, alienate her affections from them. This brings shame and reproach on the father, their mother, their siblings and the family name, and also upon themselves. But they are so in love with themselves that they don't even care. Many of us will see in ourselves, if, if any of us see this in ourselves, we must humble ourselves now, repent for a rebellion and our self-will, and beg God and our parents for mercy. It's never too late. Break off your sins and show mercy to your parents. And if you are a parent of such a fool, if you are ever a parent of such a fool, take comfort. There are no perfect parents, and God never justifies a child's wickedness with parental faults or failures. Instead, he is the God of parents and is a heavenly father. He will remember every bit of your investment and pain for comfort now and for in the future. Beg him for wisdom in light of your troubles. All of us can also examine how well we honor our heavenly father. Have we wasted any of the precious grace which he has bestowed on us? Have you brought any shame or reproach to his glorious name? Are you living like a child of God? bringing delight to your Father. This reminds us of our need to confess our own sins. Please kneel where you are. Last week, we saw how prosperity is not automatically good. Even when men are inundated with blessings, like being rich, wealthy, and honored, they may be storing up goods for a, for a stranger, for a foreigner. And wisdom is necessary to discern God's blessing or curse upon men. You can't tell just by looking at them. This week we look at the corollary to this truth. Solomon will tell us that even in the midst of suffering, sadness, and death, the adversity of life is frequently better than the seeming easy way out. In our text, verses 1 through 12, Solomon gives us a number of proverbs, which by their nature require us to wrestle with them in order to see the point. However, that is the path to wisdom. In verses 1 to 6, we see Solomon's argument that adversity is better than ease. And in verses 7 to 12, we see why this is so. And finally, in verses 13 to 15, we see Solomon's conclusion to this section of the argument. In short, God is sovereign over prosperity 
and over adversity. Men must learn to accept this, and they must learn to look to him for wisdom in their lot. For now, we start with verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Here we see luxury compared to reputation. Both are good, but reputation is more valuable. Perfume may be the icing on the cake, or it may be covering up a stink. But a good name is only possible by being good. A good name is transparent. The cessation of goodness will tarnish the name. Next, Solomon says that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. How can that be? Death is better than birth? Is Solomon advocating devil-may-care living so that you die sooner or, or suicide? Certainly not. First, in connection to the previous proverb, all of the suffering and burdensome labor of life is put to rest at death. At last, the work of maintaining a good name is accomplished. A baby is a tremendous blessing and a mountain of potentiality. However, as we learned last week, there's no inherent good in children. A man can have hundreds of them and still see no good in his days. A wise son is a blessing to his parents and those around him, but a foolish son is a shame to his father and a grief to his mother. Ultimately, it's a matter of faith. Only a Christian can claim that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Only a man who knows that God is sovereign, good, and loves him can hold to this. Because it is true. And death is only the, the only true release from the vanity of this world. If the point of life is to know God and to enjoy Him forever, we certainly make a big step forward on the day of our birth. But we progress even further on our death day. By faith we can say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Next, Solomon tells us that mourning is better than feasting, verses 2 to 4. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. In this, Solomon is fleshing out what he said in the last verse. Mourning is better than feasting because everybody dies. And because everybody dies, everybody should take a moment to consider that fact. What does that mean about life? Men are good at ignoring this. Or I should say, they're good at attempting to ignore it. It is a cold, hard fact that every one of us will stop breathing and our hearts will stop beating and we will die. When you go to the house of mourning, that is what you dwell upon and that is what you consider. Just yesterday, Molly and the kids and I went out to breakfast, and we had a waitress that was jovially complaining that when her four-year-old son came home from a religious preschool, he asked her, Mom, what is hell? 
<laughs> she was frustrated that he wasn't, he wasn't ready for that. But I think that he was more ready for that than she was. And that's why he wanted to know. We shouldn't be afraid to talk to our kids about death. Because fear is driven by the unknown. If we want our children to be afraid of death, then we should fear it. And we should fear to tell them about it. But if we want to defy death, if we want to overcome it, then we must proclaim to them that it is a part of life. It's a hard part. It's a difficult part. But that through it, through death, God brings us to eternity. He brings us closer to Him. We all die, and it's okay. It's okay to be curious about death. We all need to consider what our end is, because that will inform us about how to live now. And we get that knowledge by experience, by going to the house of mourning. Now, I'm not advocating that we become the church of the morose, or glorify death, or that we all need to walk around like puddle glums. A major problem in our world is that men go around ignoring that death is imminent. They fear it, and they run from it. They hide from death. They busy themselves with the things of the world so that they don't need to face the music of their sin and their ultimate destiny. There's a reason that the entertainment industry is so, incre is so incredibly powerful and profitable. Men will seek any way they can to hide from God. And the best way they can do that is to not think about Him. So they must be entertained. So they run about feasting, watching sitcoms and YouTube, listening to musicians and comedians. And when they're not doing that, they're working to pay for it. Because that's where their hearts are. In the house of mirth. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. They're trying to run from God, but it won't work. It's an empty joy they seek. That is not the kind of enjoyment that God has for wise men. Wise men can laugh. Wise men can be merry. And wise men can enjoy life despite the light of knowing death. Because they also know the God who is over it. Next, Solomon tells us that rebuke is better than empty praise. Verse 5 and 6. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. This is pretty straightforward. Nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody likes to get a good splash of cold water. It isn't pleasant, it's offensive, and it can certainly hurt your feelings. And this is especially true if the rebuke is in regard to some of your work in which you've invested much effort, time, or of yourself, if you identify with your work. On the other hand, flattery can be very flattering. It can cushion your ego and it can swell your pride. 
The rub happens when a wise man observes the need for a rebuke. This is because this is because there's truly potential for improvement, for growth, or for repentance. And a wise man is humble, so he will desire that rebuke more than the false praise of fools. In the end, you'll be much better off with his rebuke than with the praise of fools. Because the wise man discerns well, he is pointing to truth and ultimately to God in his wisdom. So, appearances are appearances. Death seems worse than birth. And mourning seems worse than feasting. And rebuke seems worse than flattery. But wisdom says otherwise. In all of the adversity, God is teaching men something. And what he is teaching them is the goodness of wisdom. In verses 7 to 7 to 12. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. But he starts in teaching men about the goodness of wisdom by telling them about the weakness of men in regard to wisdom. In short, wisdom can leave men. Verse 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. And a bribe debases the heart. First, oppression and wickedness can drive men to madness and turn them into fools. And not just any man, but even the wise man can be crushed by these evils. Second, upright hearts are not bulletproof either. They may be corrupted by greed and they may be turned by lust. Wisdom and righteousness, uprightness, are not static goods. It's not something that once you have, it's automatic. It's something that is a continual pursuit. If you want wisdom, you must pursue it. It's because wisdom is a lady. Lady wisdom is a lady of quality who will not remain beside fools. Thus, we must pursue her. And we must be vigilant in that pursuit. Because as soon as we stop pursuing wisdom, as soon as we stop pursuing God, we stagnate and turn into fools. In verse 8, we see that this pursuit of wisdom is a marathon and not a sprint. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Wisdom recognizes beginnings and endings. And endings are better because the desired result is accomplished. The job is well done. The battle is over. And the time comes for rest. But wisdom in this life is that the pursuit of wisdom is a lifelong pursuit. That's what Paul tells us to run the race with vigilance so that we may finish well. The time comes for rest because patience is better than pride. The adversity of seeing something through is better than bragging about something before it is done. But patience is challenging. It's tough. Patience is one of those difficult virtues. It's like humility. You know, when you pray to God for humility, it's a scary thing to do. 
when you pray to God for patience. It's a hard thing to do. And the reason it's hard is because patience is attained when we encounter difficulties, obstacles, and suffering. Patience is steady. And patience is endurance. Patience is faith in the goodness and sovereignty of God, despite the appearance of adversity. Despite the appearance that He is neither good nor sovereign. In this world, we encounter that truth. That things appear like God is not in control. And this requires patience. It requires faith. But through, though patience is tough, it is also worthwhile, according to Solomon here. And this is what James tells us about patience. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But this is what patience does. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience perfects us. Verse 9 defines one of the attributes of being proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Obviously, this is the opposite of patience. Wise men are not immune to anger, but they are slow to it. Also, their anger will bring life or protect it rather than destroy it. Fools, on the other hand, are quick to be angry because they are angry already. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. Thus it comes out of them at the drop of a hat. Irrational and foolish anger is obvious. And it is an excellent signpost for anyone looking on that a fool is in the vicinity. So if you don't want to be thought a fool, don't hasten to be angry. Next, verse 10 gives us a warning sign that would indicate that you forgot you were in the race. That you forgot that you were pursuing wisdom. Verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. It's a race. We're pursuing wisdom. As you run a race, you continually get closer to your goal, the finish line. But when you say, why were the former days better than these, you're not being wise. And there are a few things to consider here. One, men have shoddy memories. And a lot of times they don't remember the past as well as they should. Giving them a propensity to look at it with rose-colored glasses. For instance, some people may lament the good old days when everybody was nicer. Grandpa used to till the soil with his own two hands, and he had a cow or two, and he, lived, he used to live it up down on the farm. But what they forget is that Grandpa had to get up at 4 a.m., and the cow pen needed mutt with a pitchfork. The fields could suffer from drought or flood, and he was too busy to see many people to have them be mean to him in the first place. Another problem is when the former days really were better. But God has us going through a season of adversity. Because God is the author of it, it is not our place to question Him. If He is God, 
If he is sovereign and, and if he is good, then we must trust him and have faith that all things work together for good to those who love God. All things. Thus, you do not inquire wisely concerning this. If we dwell on the past, it can make us miss the gift of the present that God has for us now. It can stir up ungratefulness and create a bitterness in our souls and in our spirit that is not good. But wisdom, on the other hand, is good. Wisdom doesn't focus on the past. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Formerly Solomon told us that there was no advantage, leverage, or profit from all the labor that men do under the sun. What good is it? It's all vanity, all the work. And this is true. But here he tells us that wisdom is good and profitable. It gives us leverage. It gives us an advantage. So if you want to attain standing before God and men, pay attention here. All the work in the world without wisdom is just moving piles of rocks. But with wisdom, there is gain. And this is for two reasons. First, wisdom is a defense, like money. Wisdom protects wise men from many things, from evil, from loss, from foolishness, and from suffering. And second, wisdom gives life. What a gift. Wisdom is good. Next, Solomon concludes this part of his argument with a declaration that God sees through appearances. Verses 13 and 15. And first we see in verse 13 that God, that, that no one can change the work of God. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? God has made everything as it is. He ordains everything. He made the weather what it was this morning. He makes it hot and he makes it cold. He ordains whether there's a car crash on the interstate and you're late for work. He ordains everything. And where you are in life is something that you have to accept from Him. If your life has crookedness in it, it's from Him. And we must recognize that truth. Because God is sovereign over everything. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Because of this, we must accept what he gives us. The good things with joy, and the bad things with wisdom. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. It's a gift from God. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. So that man can find out nothing that will come after him. God gives us both prosperity and adversity. 
And just because a man is prosperous doesn't mean that he's under God's blessing. And just because a man is suffering and has adversity doesn't mean he's under God's curse. All it means is that he's under God, just like everybody else. And the whole point of it is that God is sovereign and he does it that men should fear before him. A man's state between his, before God is between him and God. We cannot look from the outside and say, say with any absolute certainty, this is what his state is. That's what God judges. That's what God determines. So man cannot find out anything that will come after him. But God knows. And despite that, we still see that some things appear to be wrong. Evil still exists and wickedness persists. Verse 15. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. That's evil. When a righteous man perishes in his righteousness. And not only is that evil, but this is evil. And there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. These are difficult truths. But this is the world we live in because of sin. Sin has corrupted the world. And sin makes evil present. It is not our job to be able to explain away sin. It's not our job to be able to, to, to really understand how can a truly good and righteous God create a world in which sin exists. We don't know the answer to that question, ultimately. Ultimately, we must turn in faith to the one who knows, and that's the one who it is. It's God. It's not our job to sanction God for the injustices that we perceive. And a big part of this is because our perception is bent and twisted. We can't even see clearly. All the light that we have is from Him. So we have to ask in faith for light to understand. If you want wisdom, you must ask God for it. And James tells us that God gives it freely. It's there. He's giving it to us. In our text from John this morning, Jesus said, My message is eternal life. He says, I'm not coming to judge the world, but to save the world. And what my proclamation is, is eternal life. And yet, the proclamation condemns the unjust. Jesus comes giving a free gift of life, and the unjust, the wicked, turn it away. Turn away from it. It's not our place to test God. It's not our place to question Him. It's not our place to, to ask Him to defend Himself. Our place is to observe His work. Our place is to observe good and rejoice. Our place is to receive gifts and enjoy. And our place is to observe evil and consider. Surely God has appointed both. So we see with the story of Job, Job's response at the loss of all of his wealth and children, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Where does this wisdom come from? It comes from faith. 
Job believed. How can we have peace in the light of coming death? Faith. God gives us peace with Him. So the idea of being closer to Him should be a joy to us, and not something that causes fear. And because God's given us peace with Him, He's given us peace with our neighbor, in the gift and grace of faith. Wisdom in life under the sun is living in the knowledge that everything that we are and have will answer to God in the end. That is why the house of mourning is better than the house of mirth. Why the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting and laughter. It's because in the funeral home you cannot deny that the dead guy is now before the judge of heaven and earth, as you will be someday. That knowledge, think of it as the big picture or the grand scheme of things, puts everything else in perspective. Are you contemplating these things? Are you thinking about death? That means that you're still alive. Give thanks to God for the gift of life. Are you suffering? Consider that God is teaching you something in the suffering. Consider what God is teaching you in it. Are you trusting God for salvation, or are you trying to work your own way out of your pickle? God's teaching you faith in your adversity. When you get a challenge, accept it as a gift from God for Him to teach you to trust and rest in Him. To look to Him for strength. Because when you are weak, that's when Christ is strong. Faith knows that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Trials demand faith, but faith knows that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. God waits for us with loving arms on the other side of death in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why the message of the gospel is so striking. God sent his son into the world, and Jesus taught some strange things. Things about appearances, things that men didn't know what to do with. They didn't understand it because it didn't make sense. The Judaic religion was all about external faith, going to the temple, praying, fasting, doing good deeds, giving your alms. Because when you did that, you had honor from your, from your peers. You looked good. But Jesus tells us, Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. He teaches very similarly on doing good deeds and about amassing wealth. Put your treasure in heaven, and there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. He's telling man to live by faith in a good God that sees in secret, who knows their heart. He sees the heart. Also in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus teaches that wealth and poverty are temporary, and we are not. 
This life is temporary, but our souls are not. Wisdom in this life is remembering what God told Samuel when he went to anoint one of Jesse's sons. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God judges the hearts. And in this, Jesus is our example, as he is ever and always in everything else. God looked at his heart. On Palm Sunday, Jesus went forward to Jerusalem with the blessing of God. He had all the trappings and appearance of great blessing. He went forward riding on a donkey, and the people sang his praises. He had multitudes following him. He did miracles. He whipped the money changers in the temple. According to outward appearances, it looked like he was about to take Jerusalem by storm. Remember in our text, the Pharisees said, look, the whole world has gone after him. And that upset the status quo. Yet Jesus knew that glory, riches, wealth, honor is temporary. And the praise of men is vain. And, uh, and crowds are notoriously fickle. It wasn't many days later, and he had a very different appearance. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was denied by others. He was arrested, beaten, spit upon, and ridiculed, and dragged to a hill to be nailed to a cross. There was a just man, the only truly just man who ever existed, who perished in his righteousness. And yet Jesus, who could have called down the legions of angels, accepted the work of God, and by faith went through the adversity that God had given him. He knew and believed that God appointed the one as well as the other. But his reward was not meager nor meaningless. And neither will yours be if you follow him. And that's because of Easter. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And his faithfulness was rewarded with life, resurrection life. And he gives that to each and every one of us. Jesus' adversity overcame the greatest enemy we have. So that we no longer need to fear death. But more on that next week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. This week is Passion Week, and it's a wonderful thing that we celebrate the glory of Christ's victory over death every year. But it's also a time for us to take a moment and remember what it cost Him to give us life. He came with miracles and a message of God's kingdom, and we arrested him and beat him. He fed the people and he healed their sicknesses, but we mocked him and nailed him to a tree. He came to us with life, and we gave him death, our death. Make no mistake, Jesus died for my sin and for yours, because we couldn't save ourselves.
For this purpose, He came into the world. The glory of the Gospel is that death couldn't hold Him. The blessing of life is now unleashed on the world. So that in Jesus' death, we are set free from sin and from the damnation of the law. We are now free to worship, free to eat, and free to drink from the cup of our Lord. All of the barriers between us and God have been removed. His Spirit is in our very hearts. The temple veil is torn in two, and God lives in us now. And His life is so powerful that we need not fear the enemies of this world, adversity, trials, pain, or death, because nothing can separate us from the love of God. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.